The following is an original audio series from Sierra International Machinery, Pile of Scrap, with your host, John Sacco. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Pile of Scrap. I'm here with everybody's favorite economist, especially in the recycling world, Jason Shanker. Jason! John, thank you. It's great to be here. That is quite the wind-up. I, I hope I can deliver. So, yeah, here we are. Well, you know, Jay, it, it's funny. You, you've been part of the Trade Association, Institute of Scrap Recyclers. That's where we, where we met. And you do work for Sierra, for full disclosure, your uh, prestige economics, the, you know, your foresight, your ranking in the world is pretty outstanding. So where are you ranked on Bloomberg these days? Tell us your rankings. Um, well, right now I'm top ranked in a few different currency categories. They no longer have some of the same commodity rankings for which I've been ranked number one in the world. They don't they don't have those rankings anymore. Are they tired of you having the spotlight? What's the Probably. I, I no, no. I I I I think um, I think it might have been an issue with people changing firms very frequently, and then they they lose track of who's where. So uh, people um, on the move. People on the move, which in finance people tend to change jobs and companies quite often. But I've, I've been doing this for thirteen years now. That all? Yeah. Well, I've been doing well before this. I was um, I was in consulting for a couple of years. Before that, I was in banking. I guess the first time I spoke to Israel was two thousand five. So that's been 17 years. Fantastic. Well, you know what? This is fantastic. You know, it segues in about people bouncing around. One of the big issues to all of us in the recycling industry today is the labor market. Why don't you give us an update? Because this podcast is going to get released this week. So what's going on in the labor market? Is it or is it not tight? What is the real issue? Why aren't people able to find job or find people to work? What's going on? Yeah, so I think there's a few things, right? Everyone wants to see the economy firing on all cylinders. The problem is right now the the economy is firing on eight cylinders, but it's only a six-cylinder economy, right? So we've got essentially more jobs open than there are people, and this is especially true in industries that never shut down, essential industries like scrap metal recycling, manufacturing, and other industries that were deemed critical, right? So all of that stuff's super tight. And against that, we still have a backdrop of very low interest rates and really good economic tailwinds. So we were talking earlier, and I think this is probably the most fascinating statistic. There's 149 million people in the workplace, yet there's job openings for or yeah, yeah, let me explain this one. You're, you're, yeah, so if you look at the number of jobs posted online, there's a Help it. Wanted Online Index from the conference board, and you see there's 16 or 17 million more jobs available implied than there are people currently working in, in the workforce, right? So we're down a little bit from where we were before COVID, but there's still this monstrous gap of open jobs, a lot more open jobs than there, millions and millions more open jobs than there were before COVID. So as the recycling industry goes and the manufacturing industry that uses the metals and the paper and the plastic, the electronics that we recycle, how does that translate to their economic world? Yeah. So I I think there's a couple of things. I think probably the most important thing we learned during the COVID pandemic is that the generational narrative that millennials just want experiences in avocado toast is a mythology. And that the truth is... I don't like avocado toast. Well, but right. But, but, no, you, no, Jay, no, you don't I look don't, like I'm you not, eat avocado. I'm not an avocado <laughs> toast. But, but the point is that, you know, we've all been to conferences. We've heard people talk about the different generations. and Millennials don't want to own stuff. What do you know when people couldn't go out and consume services, everyone wanted to own stuff. And so this notion that all generations are different. No, every 20-year-old becomes a 40-year-old. And the truth is 
that right now, obviously millennials, some millennials are in their 40s now, right? And so, to, you know, try that one on for size. And that happened during COVID. And what do you know? People want to buy stuff. And as they bought more stuff, it drove up metals demand. It drove up metals prices. It made scrap metal recycling become even more critical as a supply chain input for manufactured goods. And with super low interest rates, everyone was buying everything, which is why the prices of used vehicles, new vehicles, equipment, durable goods, you name it, all stuff is expensive because everyone was buying everything. Okay, so in a report that I, I saw of yours, the Material Handling Institute, is it, or industries? Industry. Industries. They're unfulfilled orders. Now, here at Sierra, and like many of the people I've talked to in the recycling industry, we still have over a half a million dollars of forklifts that have been on order for over a year now. And we only got three out of the 10. What are they telling you? So there's an economic index that Prestige Economics creates for uh, every month for MHI, the Material Handling Industry Group. It's like the ISRI for material handling. Right on. And they're not as fun as us though, right? I, uh -oh. they are a very fun group. <laughs> I and, got it. I was hoping yeah. we were the funnest. But Isri go on. is also a very, everybody's a fun group. So, okay, there you go. And everyone, very politically correct. And everyone who's in manufacturing is struggling with what I call scavenger hunt economics, right? You're trying to manufacture stuff. I know you've seen it here at Sierra. You got to manufacture whatever you're making, a baler, uh, You've got to get these parts and those parts and this metal. And then, oh, what if this one piece is missing? Now it all goes into unfilled orders. And that's what happened in material handling. They've had record levels of unfilled orders. Inventories then go up. Stuck Stuff is stuck in whip because you're trying to get all the stuff you need. And then you're also hoping you have all the people to make all the stuff. Well, I could tell you for manufacturing of balers, the biggest issue we have with balers and shears right now are the electronic components. You know, you can have a million-dollar piece of equipment, and this, for any piece of equipment, you need electronics running. But if you don't have that little $50 fuse box, that million-dollar piece of equipment doesn't run. So what are they saying is the biggest shortages? Or do you know? What, what's the hardest components to come by? Yeah, so for most manufacturers I talk to, and I, 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 I do work in the material handling industry, I do work for other industry groups as well, they're all struggling with everything. And it's sort of a little kids soccer team of shortages, right? So, you know, that all of a sudden over here, oh no, we can't get steel at any price. Oh, steel's opening up a little bit. Oh no, now we need... Whatever. Whatever, right? Now well, we need electronics. Oh no, now we've got it all, but we don't have any people because the labor market... Oh, now let's quick hire more people. You know, and you, you run around on this merry-go-round. Well, that's true. I mean, you know, at, from our experience, okay, Sierra, you know, look, we're manufacturers of equipment. But we're also, we run a recycling operation. So some of the goods we're trying to buy, we just can't get. Uh, and we hear the supply chain. And as a manufacturer, there's truth. Yeah. And, and what's really happened here is the price of money everywhere has gone to super dirt cheap levels we've never seen. The Fed, other central banks were buying debt of various kinds to depress interest rates even further. And then most governments spent all kinds of money they didn't have and engaged in deficit spending. And so what happens is you had the cost of money, the cost to borrow plummet, and then you had all a huge cash infusion from sovereigns. So countries like the US, right? Stimulus payments and, and, and other kinds of things, or also the PPP loans, all kinds of money comes into the system. So you've got all kinds of money coming in just as interest rates are super low and demand for all physical goods went up. And now you've got supply chain bottlenecks and orders that are out 6, 12, 24 months. Yeah. So, you know, I hear this from people, uh, right, you know, regular consumers of everyday products. Rising prices are due because big business can raise the price. And I, and I tell them, look, consumer or the manufacturer's price index or producer's price index you know, it's 15% inflation. You know, things are costing more, so you have to raise your prices. But what do you say to those who say, well, people are just raising the prices because they can, they're gouging the consumer. What's real and what's not real there? Yes, there's, there's a couple pieces here. That PPI index, the producer price index, includes producer 
inflation costs for both services and manufactured goods. That 15% year-on-year is the December 2021 year-on-year rate for manufactured goods only. So that's a really good proxy for what, again, all industries, anything manufactured, that's what that finished PPI number is. So that's that's a big number, but that excludes inflation and services is typically less. And, and not all manufacturing takes place in the same place, has the same pressures. But in aggregate, that's that 15% number. The big takeaway, though, what you're talking about is sort of this business strategy, right? Which is no one wants to be the CEO of a company that has the biggest year of new orders ever and doesn't turn a profit, right? You you know, because the, the goal of business is, don't tell anybody, this is super secret, buy low, sell high, make money, right? And you want, you want to make a spread. I think that's the first thing I learned in the metal recycling business. <laughs> Shh, don't tell anyone. Big I, secret. Yeah. I think there's folks who don't get it. Yeah. So the point is, right, you want to you have that spread. The problem is some companies, because of the inflationary pressures, they've had their biggest years of orders ever, but costs have gone up faster than prices, which means... You know, this is like that old joke, right? A guy sells a car. Every car he sells, he loses 500 bucks. Somebody goes over and says, how, how, how do you have a business? He goes, I make it up on volume, right? Yeah. Right. But, this, but, but the truth is you have to make a profit on those items. Now, balance that risk, that need to make a profit against what happens if you raise your prices too fast. You raise your prices too fast, your competitors are going to come along and eat your market share. Sure. So you have to balance that. So the question of, is everybody just, you know, raising prices to whatever? Companies are trying to remain profitable in a, a, a rapidly elevated inflation environment, and they can only raise it so fast sure. so that they you, don't lose market share. Yeah, and there, there's always price resi- there's resistance to price increases. So yeah. this goes now, this leads into... Inflation, interest rates discussion. Okay, yep. you know, are we in hyperinflation? And how much are the feds going to raise the rate? 50 basis points, more or less. I mean, at what point do they scare the hell out of equities and all of a sudden things come tumbling down if they rate to go too high or if they don't do enough and we suffer hyperinflation? Where are we on all this? So we're not at hyperinflation. 7.5%, which is a year-on-year total CPI number, uh, that is not hyperinflation. That's the January uh, 2022 number, year-on-year, 7.5%. So that's a lot of inflation compared to the U.S. because the Fed's target before COVID was 2. And the long-term target of the Fed is 2. 7.5 is multiples of that, right? But hyperinflation is kind of when it's out of control, and that's what the Fed wants to prevent, right? It's not seven, then it goes from seven point five to ten to fifteen right. to three hundred percent, eight hundred percent, ten thousand percent, right? And the next thing you know, we're printing you know hundred trillion dollar bills, right? So that that's <laughs> hyperinflation. But the Fed doesn't even want it to be really where it is now. They're going to be raising interest rates probably beginning in in the next March meeting of the Fed, which is on March sixteenth. How much? Your guess. I know your guess is good it's as anyone. Probably, but- I, I, they, the markets are currently beginning to price in a 50 basis point increase, which is super aggressive. But even right now, as we're sitting here on, on Valentine's Day, spending our Valentine's Day with the folks here, pile of scrap, oh. sharing the love. You know, and as we're as we're here, Boy, are we that, the most romantic? Our wives just love us. Your, do your podcast on whenever you want. That's now. it. That's it. Bromantic podcast. Yeah, there, there you, you go. go. Uh, our, it's our love for scrap that brings there us it here. Is. There it is. So, you know, the, the, the truth is that as, as we're sitting here, the Fed right now is still expanding its balance sheet. The Fed is pulling money essentially out of the sky, saying it just has more, and it's buying mortgages and treasuries to depress those interest rates. So even right this very second, as we're talking about 50 basis point rate hikes a, a, a month from now, the Fed is still engaging in actions where its balance sheet is getting bigger and it's spending money that it previously did not have to buy mortgages and treasuries to keep interest rates low. So this is this is really crazy. But if the Fed moves too, they didn't want to move too fast. If they move too fast, that's when you get massive market corrections. Fed doesn't want to do that either. So you you feel the market's been priced? They're they're pricing in as we speak the fifty percent basis hike. 
that wouldn't surprise you if they did that. Yep. That would mean the uh, okay, rate. so they're raising interest rates to slow down inflation, to kind of cool things off. What's the net effect on business if, if – what's going to happen? Yeah, so the, right what's now – What's the real the, thing hap- going to happen? Yeah, so right now the interest rate, the, the baseline interest rate that the Fed sets, all other interest rates are kind of based off that. So the Fed rate right now, it's between 0 and 0.25%. If they raise it 50 basis points, then the interest rate would be 0.5 to 0.75%. They're probably going to do a lot more rate hikes than just one, but they're not going to do it so quickly that it reverses the wealth effect. So here's the big secret about the American economy. Over 70% of the U.S. economy is consumption, people buying stuff. When do people buy stuff? When they feel wealthy. Well, this is a thing called the wealth effect. When do people feel wealthy? When their home prices go up, when the stock market goes up. That's happened a lot in the last couple of years. People feel pretty good. They're out there spending. What the Fed doesn't want to do is raise rates so much that people then, those prices go down, people feel less wealthy, and then you end up with a cycle where, uh-oh, now I'm scared, now I'm going to spend less, and then it Okay, it, let's it, talk it about personal fast. spending, people who sure. use a lot of credit cards, and there's the higher the... the Credit card debt is up, right? All, all, all debt, it, overall consumer debt in the U.S. is up. But as a percent of GDP, it's much lower than when it was before the financial crisis. That's interesting. Okay, but let, let, so they raise rates. What are credit card rates going to do then? Well, They'll what, all go up. But, but a credit level? card rate, look, if the Fed raises rates 0.5%, your 26% rate interest on, on your credit card might go up to 26.5%, okay. right? So, so the, there's kind of a marginal difference. The area where it's most important is probably not with credit cards because the rates are already so high. It's in mortgages. It's what happens in the housing market. Because if you get the Fed moves, okay, so they do 50 basis points, then they do another 50, then they do another 50, or they do a 50 and then a bunch of 25s. Who knows, right? But by the end of the year, maybe we're at 100 basis points, maybe we're at 175 so basis points. So mortgage rates go from what to what? Oh, they could go from like three and a quarter, three and a half to four and a half percent to five. At what level do mortgage rate at, at what interest level on mortgage rates really start stifling new growth and in, in, in the housing market and in that industry? At what level do you think people go, well, I can't afford that? So in every recession in U.S. history, except for the recession of 07, 09, when interest rates went down, housing starts went up. Housing demand went up. The reason is the cost of money goes down and, and the demand is there, right? Now, 0709, that didn't happen because that was a crisis caused in, in large part due to the housing crisis. What's happened, though, since 09 is that there hasn't been enough housing built. That even now, even after the COVID recession, housing starts are not near where they were. They're still lower than where they were Why? before 07. Tight credit. If you look at the mortgages that have been issued, something like two-thirds of mortgages in recent quarters have been issued to people with 760 credit scores or better. Those are the good people. That's two-thirds of recent mortgages. So now, didn't we get into the housing bubble based on the fact we were lending money to anybody regardless of their credit score? You didn't even have to put money down. Right. So So I think before the housing crisis, it might have been around... 40% 40% of mortgages that were going to people with the 760 plus credit score. So in other words, we have a higher percentage right now, people with those higher credit scores. That's a good sign for housing. What's also a good sign for that market in general is right now there's really high demand. There's undersupply. There's tight inventory, there's tight inventory in Bakersfield, right. there's tight inventory in Austin, there's tight inventory in a lot of places. And yet we talked about the labor market, labor market's high, hot right now. A lot of people have jobs. People are making more money than they've ever made before. And and so they might still be buying even as interest rates go up. But what happens is as people buy houses, they have to make a trade-off between how much they're putting towards the interest payment, how much they're putting towards the actual Equity. house, right? Mm-hmm. That, and that's, that's it. This is what people talk about of how much house can you afford because mortgages are usually approved based on your monthly payment relative to your your, your income and your debt. So all of this leads into the great, how does this affect the metals market for recy- in our recycling industry? Yep. We always want to see our commodity prices 
hot. You know, copper and aluminum right now are incredible ranges. Uh, new steel has been very high uh, as a manufacturer. Plate prices, you know, are ridiculous compared to what they were a year ago. But you're forecasting something a little different. Tell us about what you're seeing in in the metals uh, commodities uh, uh, sector. Sure. So I think the the outlook is in two parts: the non-ferrous and the ferrous. On the ferrous side, I think we're going to probably see some more downward pressure than we see on the non-ferrous side. Non-ferrous is likely to remain quite strong. Inventories for some metals, you look at the LME inventories for aluminum, very, very tight. You look at the expected demand from uh, electric vehicles and other policy-driven net zero emission goals. There's not enough of metals like nickel, copper, lithium, cobalt, vanadium. Many metals in the non-ferrous side are just not in the abundance required to meet those future needs, which is very price supportive. On the ferrous side, there's a little more downside. There is more supply, and, and those aren't really tied to that. What, what, part why of the is green there more revolution. supply of iron in the recycle in the ferrous side for the recycling versus the non-ferrous? I mean, aren't things being built? I mean, isn't there still a trillion dollars? that the yep. government has approved. And when people want to buy quote unquote stuff, yep. uh, stuff needs, you know, new infrastructure bill. We yep. still need highway, you know, still need a right. lot of steel to do this. Oh yeah. 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 We're, well, so what I'm talking about is the amount of supply literally on planet earth. Okay. Right? There's more well, between iron, iron ore, ore and, right? Like okay. if we compare iron ore to, to copper, if we compare, um, you know, that to nickel or, or lead or zinc or right. That's what we're talking about when we say that. But but in terms of the flows, of course, there's a lot more ferrous that 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 also flows through the recycling world. Okay. Uh, than we see than than a specific non-ferrous metal. Well, so 2022, a lot of people who sell equipment are almost sold out this year. Sierra being one of them. Uh, try buying a material handler. Try buying a Peterbilt truck. Try buying a Kenworth truck. Forklifts. We talked about for it. You're not going to be able to get it. Um, 2022 going to be a good year. 2023, when you're already talking sales into, here we are early February, Valentine's Day, halfway through February, and we're talking sales into 2023 on multiple commodities, uh, you know, uh, consumer products. What's your forecast? Yeah, so this year, a lot of the growth is baked in because we've got demand, new orders, manufactured goods, things already booked. That this year should be a good year. Growth rate might not be as strong as in 2021, but there was a lot more stimulus last year. Interest rates lower last year than they'll be this year. This should still be a good year for growth in the U.S. 2023 is going to be slower. In 2024, second of 2023, and into 2024, there's more risks. Because, well, hold on, hold on. You say sure. slower, but what's still a good economy, even in a slower rate of GDP growth, What's still considered a good economy? You know, in the U.S., uh, I would think between that one and a half and two and a half percent GDP is that's where we spent most of the last business cycle. Those are okay years. One and a half feels less okay than two and a half, right? But so, but what are you forecasting twenty twenty three? For twenty twenty three, we're probably going to see that growth range be closer to the two and a half number. Okay. So we're still going to see good economic times. We should see good economic times, but the Fed could mess it up, right? And the Fed could raise <laughs> rates a little too quickly. Leave it to the government. To... Well, it's you know, the thing is, this interest rate thing, it's a moving target. And if they go a little too fast, things slow a little more quickly, and then we're at one and a half or less. All right. So as an economist, as, yep. as a person who's, you know, this industry is near and dear to your heart. Yep. Um, and you look at what the Fed's could do, should do, or will do, what percentage likelihood do you give them, them screwing it up? 50-50, 60-40? What, I mean, you know, Over we're what? dealing with people who don't <laughs> cut, make payroll. Right. So for the, the central bankers uh, on the Federal Reserve who make the decisions about interest rates on a one-year time horizon, like do they mess it up this year? I'd say there's an 80% chance that they don't mess it up in 2022. Okay. 
I'd say there's a 60% chance they don't mess it up by 2023. Okay, well, that's that's and, better than 50-50. And there's probably a 30% chance they don't mess it up by 2024, right? So you could see the risk profile changes because they might be cutting interest rates by the second half of 2023 or into 2024. You might recall before we had COVID, manufacturing had actually slumped in the second half of 2019 because the Fed had raised rates too quickly and was reducing the size of its balance sheet and they had to quickly reverse course. They were cutting rates before COVID happened, not because they had any inclination or, or any, any, any inkling that COVID was going to happen. It was simply that growth had slowed too much. They had gone too far. So I do think we're going to see them maybe reverse course Quickly, more quickly okay. than we have in the past. Well, the biggest wild card right now for all of us who are brave enough to turn on the evening news is Cold <laughs> War Two. Is it? I mean, the reality is, is this current administration is saying, "Be prepared that Russia is going to invade Ukraine," and then, oh, you get one side saying this and that. Then there's China and Taiwan. I mean. Man, if those events happen, what happens to our economy? Does it just crater completely? I mean, what's the likelihood of it? some of it happening? Does it happen? And what does it do to our economy? So there are two parts to the Cold War II thing that we've been talking about for some time. The first part's what's going on in Europe, and the second part's what's going on in Asia. Let's handle maybe the European part Let's ha- Let's go to Europe. It is a very quickly evolving situation. Just a few days ago, as you know, State Department came out and said, look, you know, if, if you're, you, you got to get out. Uh, President Biden said, look, we're not going to, if you don't get out of Ukraine and there's a war, we're not sending troops in to come rescue you. You should get out now, right? We, we've heard that now from the National Security Advisor. We've heard it from the Secretary of State. We've heard it from the President, right? That's... That's a real risk that that could go sideways. And it could go sideways even before this podcast gets posted. And by sideways, I mean that could turn into armed conflict. Yeah, you know, it's only going to take a couple of days to get this edited out. So I'll be, all right, let, let's talk about <laughs> okay, that for a second. So go what happens, it. right? So this is a greatest downside risk to European growth, right? Because this would be the first major European armed conflict um, in really since the Second World War. So this would be of a of a of a multinational sort, right? And I realize there were conflicts in Yugoslavia, but but that was part of the the balkanization, the breakup of the country. So compared to bad things that could happen, this is pretty high on the list for Europe. That could drive up things like European natural gas prices, European power prices, global LNG prices. Russia is a critical supplier of natural gas into Western Europe, and that's part of the Western European Sustainability Initiative, the move away from coal, the move away from nuclear in Germany, for example, it's all relying on Russian natural gas. So there's all kinds of complicated relationship aspects of that. The other thing it could do, it could support the dollar as a flight to liquidity. It could also support gold prices. For industrial metals, it could be mixed to bearish as it could be for equities. And it'll just kind of depend on how bad things are, how quickly things play out. But it's not a great scenario, especially in a rising interest rate environment. It just piles on some extra risk. But here in America, do Americans really fear this? The Ukraine-Russia war? Do they? Do you feel that the John Q. public, they're going to like brush it off out of hell with them? They're too far away? Or do they feel this is going to spill over to their everyday lives to a whole full-blown conflict that enters into World War III. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not predicting World War III. I've been predicting Cold War II for some time, and this certainly begins to look like it. What I would say is if we think about Ukraine and the risks, and what does it mean to the U.S., we could look at what does it mean to the U.S. and NATO, because the U.S. and NATO have both come out and said, uh, and of course the U.S. is a member of NATO, but Ukraine has, since 2020 has been a partner country of NATO, right? And one of the big sticking points is Russia doesn't want Ukraine joining NATO, right? Traditionally, in its sphere of influence, does not, it's on its border, it does not want to see Ukraine join NATO, right? So there's, that's a, a really big sticking point. But both NATO and the US have come out and said, 
here's going to be our response. Political and economic sanctions of Russia. We're going to send support and material to Ukraine. And we're going to send more troops to NATO countries that border Russia and Ukraine. There is no discussion of sending U.S. troops into Ukraine. And in a recent survey, Morning Consult did a survey of 2005 U.S. registered voters the first week of February, and only 34% of American voters could find, of those American voters they surveyed, could find Ukraine on a map. So I don't think for the U.S., for John Q. Public in the U.S., this is a big deal. In Europe, it could be a much bigger deal. So this could send oil prices higher? Could send oil and prices higher. And that could higher. stifle economic growth as well. Could add some inflationary pressure. Yeah, it could make that gas prices even reverberate right globally, most most specifically in Europe, more inflation, which would mean the ECB might need to raise rates more quickly than they otherwise would. European net gas power goes up. Global LNG goes up. Even U.S. domestic net gas prices could go up. So you get all these weird ripples, many of which seem inflationary, and then you've also got this fear factor of growth, which could weigh on European equity markets, and then that could ripple around the world globally, right? So people aren't going to feel as rich because the stock market's going back down again. Right, so. and then it could slow consumption, and it threatens a European recession or something like this. You say European recession. Yep. Why not a U.S. recession? The U.S. economy is more removed, right? Ukraine is far away. Okay, right, and so, so, so that distance is what's... <laughs> proximity is, matters a lot when we're talking large-scale wars. Got it. <laughs> well, no, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. But see, I think it, it's clear in, you know, in the, our discussions and what you're saying yep. is even if something happens, the net effect may not be that dramatic to where we are here in the U.S. as far as our economic world goes. I think that's right. I, I do think, again, equity markets can ripple, right? We've seen it many times. Europe, go, Europe equity markets goes down for some reason. The U.S. opens and the U.S. is down because Europe's down. Then Asia opens and it's down because the U.S. is down. And when Europe opens again, oh, because Asia was down, now it's down more. So you can end up with these kinds of equity market spirals. But at the end of the day, in the U.S., we have a stronger economy than in Europe. It is less threatened than, than All right. European So, so this goes down, Ukraine. Um, politicians are going to be clamoring for a stronger U.S. Uh, military. Does that help the metals in our industry? You know, from our industrial standpoint, does increasing the defense budget and building more tanks and jeeps and missiles and et cetera, et cetera, actually move the needle to commodity prices in the metal world? I don't think it will, because I'm not sure how much more additional defense spending it could lead to. The truth is because of the failures the U.S. military experienced in Iraq and, and most recently in Afghanistan, there might be very little appetite on the part of the U.S. public to get more involved militarily in a place that, again, 66% of voters can't find on a map, right? And, and getting into another conflict like that might not be something we want to do. And again, the president has not said or indicated that, and, and has said quite the opposite, we're not sending troops in if this goes bad. So essentially, what the NATO position is, what's in NATO is on this side of the wall, and we will defend with troops. What's not in NATO is on the other side of that new Iron Curtain, and uh, we'll send some stuff, right? The, the Germans sent 5,000 helmets to, to Ukraine, and the mayor of Kiev said, great, are you sending pillows next? Right. So, right. Like this is harsh. Right. So that this is a question of how much support is Ukraine going to get from these different countries and different countries will lend different levels of support. The real question becomes whether the Baltics become threatened because the Baltics, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania are in NATO and they also border Russia or if Poland were to become threatened or if Romania becomes threatened, right? So there are a number of countries in NATO that have more proximity to Russia. Those are the places we're going to send troops to send the message that what's on this side of this new Iron Curtain in Cold War II is hands off. All right. So that that's, you know, look, it's a big topic. You can't yep. turn on the news today and not see it. And, you know, this podcast, we, we're talking about economics with you, Jason. We, you know, how does this affect the recycling industry? 
you know, be it our government with laws and regulations, but now we're getting into geopolitical conflicts that can affect our industry. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and it really does affect the industry in so much as it could slow growth. It could interrupt trade flows, right? If you've got steel or, or, or ferrous scrap, any kind of metals, you're moving into Europe, out of Europe, uh, in, even if you were sending things in or out of Turkey, right? If you're moving stuff around and now suddenly there's a large armed conflict in Europe, that could make your supply chain even messier at a time when everyone has seen very messy supply chains. So well, it just you know, Let's talk about up. that real quick. Los Angeles, Long Beach. Yep. Um, you know, the, the ships that are offshore waiting to be offloaded. The truth is, and they don't tell us this, the fact is that the port of Long Beach is actually taken in, offloaded, and onboarded more goods than they ever have. And yet there's a backlog because they can't handle this 20, 30% increase of usage need, right? So, yeah. So the, the problem is it's exactly this. The system is doing more than it's ever done, but it's just not enough, right? This is the, we're going on all eight cylinders. Too bad it's a six-cylinder port, right? And it's doing more than it's ever done before, but just like you said, there's this just surplus of activity above and beyond what the supply chain can handle. And that's going on everywhere, on-road freight, waterborne freight, ports. It's everywhere throughout every supply chain. I, there's no way to find a solution, a quick solution to any of this because none of it gets done overnight. And it takes decades, you know, shovel-ready jobs. Remember that? Yep. Famous quote? Yep. We didn't see anything. Well, so, and so how do you right. increase the capacity of a port? How do you increase the capacity of your highways and, and railways? Hell, we can't even get high speed rail from Bakersfield to Sacramento because some kangaroo rats in the damn way, you know? So the, it, you just can't do anything quickly anymore. Well, there are a couple of things here. This is actually a topic that a few of the people that contribute annually to, we, we produce a book called the Robot Automation Almanac. And in 2022, we had a number of different supply chain experts contribute about what we were going to see in the year ahead. One of the solutions is you need a lot more automation in the supply chain. We do. But the other issue is there really are a limited number of ports. It takes forever to get a new port built to, or to expand a port, right? These are big infrastructure projects. And what we're seeing right now, this still gets back to the fundamental thing we talked about with the economy. Interest rates have been super low and governments everywhere infuse the world with extra money. So you've got, everyone's got money. The interest rate of money is super cheap everywhere. Everyone's buying everything. And until that slows down, the ports are going to be honeycombed, filled with more stuff than they can even move around. More stuff than we need, probably. I don't know. Well, not more than we're demanding. And well, again, that's go. a function of the, the low rates and all the money and the buy it all. So we were talking earlier when I picked you up uh, driving in here to Sierra about you. You're an economist and you, and you see the good and you see the potential for bad and you see all this stuff. And you, you, you help your clients, you know, try to navigate the economic world. But you... Got to go home every night. Yeah. And you learn all this stuff. And everybody who doesn't want to take work home, but you still know stuff that scares the hell out of you. How, how do you, you know, shut that off when you, when you know stuff because you work for some people and you can't talk about it? You know, there are different things that keep me up at night and there are things that don't, right? The, the economy, the vacillations, the vicissitudes of different economic cycles – is less worrisome to me than sort of Cold War II risks or where we see different things going on domestically with a self-balkanization of subjectivist political reality and identity that leads to infighting and, and the potential for external parties to contribute to the subversion of our democracy that's the stuff that keeps me up at night. And, you know, I, the worrying thought I had about this, and I, I've, I've, I've done some DOD work, and I, I said this recently to one of my contacts, and I've, I've done quite a bit of DOD work since 2017, and I said, no country is forever. And if there's anything I can do to help 
push this boat row in the right direction just a little bit to keep the American experiment going just a little bit longer, let me know. And that's the fundamental reality of it. That's the stuff that keeps me up at night. Well, thank you. I'm not going to be able to sleep by hearing that. <laughs> I'm already a light sleeper now. No countries forever. Oh, jeez. Well, I mean, but but it's true. Well, right? the Roman it's... Empire. You know, I think that's just a classic example of get too big and you crater. And you know, did the U.S. get too big? And are we cratering? Are we in the early stages of cratering? I, I would like to think not. I'd like to think that there's a lot. You know. I don't think in the in the near future, 10, 20 years, we're going to see this. But, you know, another 50, 100 years, I think uh, I'm glad I'm not going to be around to see it. Well, I hope you're around to see it. Well, happens, you know, that would put but... me at 110. At that point, who knows? Who, who the hell knows what that what I would care about then? Just give me a glass of wine. I'd be happy, right? <laughs> I guess that's true. You know, I think the thing that's really interesting is if we look, we all tend to think that the current state of existence is reality. And the truth is that since the end of the Second World War, we've had one of the longest periods of peace in history, and in, including, right, even with the Cold War, even with Vietnam and, and Korea and other conflicts we've had, there have been a lot fewer conflicts than at any time in history. Look at Europe. How many wars were there fought over hundreds and hundreds of years it's been pretty quiet, it's right? It's been real quiet over it's there. It's been real quiet. So the Europeans better start getting nervous then, I think. So it's been quiet a little too long, question. huh? Well, I mean, you know, the truth is we've been lucky that these post-war institutions really have helped to keep the peace. The question is, how do things shift if we see Russia and China looking to expand their reach? What? How do we respond how does that either contribute to or hinder additional conflicts? Those are things that are all moving pieces. And we don't have as much money and leverage as we had at the end of the Second World War, at the beginning of the First Cold War. We have, a, we have $30 trillion in debt now. It's a lot tougher to All right, let's, 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 this will be our last subject to talk on because Elon Musk just the other day is talking about uh, hello, people, wake up. This is a problem. You know what I mean? It seems like nobody cares. Nobody gives a crap about the how much money debt. the government spends and how much debt we have. Oh, our children and our grandchildren. I mean, I'm tired of the politicians saying that crap. Let's get right down to it. When will it start to matter? <laughs> wow, you want the easy answer. So... um, on the one hand, there's no such thing as no. A one there's hand no the such thing. Easy answer. No, no, Jay, no, no, no. no. You, so, there's so a certain point. There's something's got to give. Well, or the, maybe never. Right. So the reality is, as long as we grow faster than the debt as an economy, it's okay. The problem is our interest rates are super low right now. We talked about that. That's zero to zero point two five percent. As the Fed raises rates and other interest rates go up. We now have $30 trillion of debt. It took 205 years to get to $1 trillion in national debt. And in 2020, we added over a trillion dollars in every month of the second quarter. Now, that kept the economy going, and it would have been a lot worse if we hadn't done it. But now that interest rates are going up, we have a lot of debt to refinance. Was it worth it? I would argue the U.S. is in a much better position than emerging markets because look at how much wealth was created in the stock market in the last two years. Look at how much wealth was created in real estate of every kind, company valuations in the last two years. Everything is worth more, a lot more. That's not true in emerging markets and low-income developing economies. Those economies will see their interest rates rise. They'll see them rise faster than ours, they didn't have the same wealth creation. And which one of those markets and what areas or what have you will affect, you know, become a drag on our economy? Well, there are risks in the next sort of 12 to 24 months that we could see a large emerging market sovereign debt crisis. That would mean that countries and, and which countries it is, it's not quite clear. But what we know is if the Fed's raising rates, our rates go up a little bit. What's going to happen in emerging markets that already have a higher interest rate, 
Fed goes up a little here, those emerging market rates will probably go up quite a lot. It's called a credit spread because it's the spread between their interest rate and ours. Ours goes up a little, their spread might widen and go up quite a lot. As that happens, we could see economies in developing Asia, Africa, South America, they could have trouble paying their debts. If that happens, now you could have a global credit crisis and the sovereign debt market's a very big one. If that happens, credit everywhere could get repriced. That could present systemic risks to financial markets and financial systems. And that's a not small risk over the next 24 months. Okay, so now I won't be sleeping for the next week, two weeks. <laughs> what? I don't want to thank you for that. Um, all right, let's talk. Let, well, let, wait, allow me to allow me to make it worse. Oh, so please, like, but please. wait, but wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah, right. So, all right, Joe Ronco, let's go. You know, but that, but that's it. the The truth is that something like seventy percent of emerging market debt is currently held by China. So, if we think about those Cold War II dynamics, U.S. is in debt. We're 30 trillion plus in debt. We don't have the reach we used to have from a manufacturing standpoint, from a global power standpoint. We don't have the finances or the ability to project our influence economically the way we did at the end of the Second World War. Whereas China currently holds 70% of the debt of emerging markets. That gives them a lot of influence to project soft power. So that's another risk in the Cold War II dynamic of how we're actually already on weak footing. These credit dynamics and what ties into inflation and the Fed, how does that all tie into what could happen with China or Ukraine? All that's mixed in the same pot. Yeah, but if you have a bunch of account receivables and you don't collect, you know, putting an air base in the middle of South America – yeah. Well, so, so this is the point, right? You so got to spend. If, you got to spend if, more money. So if, I mean, they was, don't pay their. I've never seen whatever happened to a country that doesn't pay their debt. Ah, well, there are a number of different countries that didn't pay their debts to us. Uh, there are a number of different countries. This is sort of what the IMF and the World Bank were designed to do. The multilateral institutions created at Bretton Woods at the end of the Second World War, just before the end of the Second World War, to help prevent a giant credit crisis. Because what happened in the triggered. You look at the world wars and what happened, um, what really a critical contributing factor to the second world war was the Great Depression. And what caused that was a lack of transparency around debt and debt obligations in Germany. And then in the US, you have runs on the banks and the debt, and then da, 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 da. debt gets called from Germany, and now it just ripples and the whole thing, right? That creates the economic chaos everywhere. Now, the IMF and the World Bank help economies and countries that have debt refinance that debt so it doesn't lead to a crisis. But many of those countries are not being transparent with the IMF and the World Bank. This is actually going on right now. I'm a member of the Bretton Woods Committee. This is a major issue. Countries that owe money to China don't want to disclose the terms. China also doesn't want to disclose the terms of the money that it's lent to some emerging markets. Without that transparency, you can't help them refinance their debt. And if they revealed the actual terms, it might make their cost of credit go up even more. That being said, while some economies uh, might try to default on their debt, I, I don't know how well that's going to go for them if they try to default on their debt to China. Well, they'll come in and take over. Who knows? All right, so what? I mean, so what? Meaning, it's all unknown, you know, Jay. How about how about we finish here on something good? Okay. Let let's. All right. Well, we'll have to sit and pause here for the next hour I to mean, figure no, out. No, no, I don't mean to be. <laughs> Look, sometimes I give speeches. There are some groups I know that have known me for a long time, about as long as Israel, and they refer to me as Mister Happy because sometimes when I give a speech, <laughs> what I'm saying is so unhappy, but. Look, the good news is we do have strong economic tailwinds and manufacturing growth are pretty good. And for now, interest rates are low. There are these big things kind of looming out there and they're quite intricate, complicated and becoming more of a systemic risk. And so just keeping an eye on them is probably the right approach for the scrap industry to bring it all back home. Right now, things are pretty good. 
And I think they probably will be for the next year. So speculating right now is not yep. really a solid idea. It depends what you're speculating on. But, you know, uh, I, I, I think this is a time to be wary of those longer term, larger risks that are rising because they're out there. I mean, we've just come off the biggest boom, really, the country's had in a very long time, which is part of the reason the inflation rate is the highest it's been since early 1982, right? Our GDP rate in the fourth quarter um, it was, I want to say, the highest since 1984, or the, the whole year. The whole year's economic growth, I want to say for last year, both nominal and real GDP for 2021, was the highest growth rate since 1984. We haven't seen this kind of growth in a long time. And growth rates are going to slow. But there are these other things brewing just to keep an eye on. Well, I think that's that's true. My dad had a saying in Italian, il occhio dei padrone fa un grasso cavallo, which means the eyes of the owner make the horse fat, which translate, just keep an eye on things. Because, that's right. And, and I think ultimately... That's what we have to do. The recycling industry, you know, it's been around forever because people are pretty doggone sharp about keeping the eye on things. And uh, I, I think we're going to have a good year coming to Vegas for Isri. I'll be there. I'll be there. Can you imagine people getting together again? I, I'm looking forward to it. You know, so like, am I. I think it's going to be a good time. And we can, you know, we can do another podcast and talk about. Well, we're doing know, a live podcast from the booth at Sierra during nice. uh, the convention, and uh, it's my hope to get a lot of my friends and people who, you know, who we know to get on. Give me a few minutes of hello and, you know, a little conversation because ultimately, conversation and knowledge is shared by a lot of people. I think it makes us all better, and that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, it's gonna be great. We can talk about less contentious issues like the midterm elections coming up. And we didn't even hit on that. <laughs> All right, we will. Got to save something for next time, yeah, right? Oh, my goodness. Got to leave them wanting more. I mean, I guess Another we could... optimistic discussion. I'm sure it'll be calm and peaceful and just... Oh, can you imagine your political party? Oh, oh man. Yeah, that ought to be good. If you're left on the left or you're on the right, oh, oh. my goodness. Let's yeah, just yeah. stay away from, yeah, we'll, from, we'll from elections right now. Time. Yeah, yeah. Big J, thank you, buddy. Appreciate you, you coming here thank today you. and sitting down with us. And that's it for another episode of... Pile, Pile of scrap. scrap. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> this has been a Sierra International Machinery original audio series. Thanks for listening. Please share this podcast and make sure to subscribe.